We continue now with podcast number 14 as we continue on through the Roman Empire. We are in the age of empire and we will slowly be bringing the period known as ancient history to a close. However, what is generally to believed to be a variety of reasons for why Rome fell, and again, we'll get into those theories, it is important to know that the individual we're talking about right now, this Jesus Christ, is largely believed to be the reason why Rome fell, if it fell, moved, if it moved, or never actually fell at all and is still with us today, again, as we'll go over and discuss. That said, in the last episode, we looked at the individual groups who were against Jesus and what he was speaking about. We saw how the Pharisees and Sadducees were definitely against him. We ended with the Sadducees, and now we're going to continue on with the last group that we hear about in the Gospels called the Sanhedrin. They were the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. All three of these groups have serious issues with the things that Jesus is talking about. But talking about it is one thing, especially if Jesus is staying away from the major city Jerusalem when he's in the outskirts towns around Jerusalem. But the number of followers that is continuing to grow, that's what's seriously worrying these, lar- these three largely respected groups. Some problems with his teachings, and I say problems within uh, quote unquote, of course, is the following. Just And this is just literally the tip of the iceberg. But as, as Jesus said, practicing the law is not enough. In other words, staying away from the neighbor's wife, that in some respects is easy to do. But what are you thinking about her? The thinking could make you just as guilty. That makes everybody uncomfortable. Even the apostles have a problem with that. He also states many times that in paradise, what is this paradise? He gives countless number of synonyms and hypotheticals as to what this paradise is like. But where he says in paradise, with me, with my father, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Now, to individuals like commoners, who largely are last in society, or at least close to being last, but if you're a leper, a tax collector, you are shunned in society and therefore definitely are considered last. And Jesus is saying that where I'm from, where I'm going, you outsiders, you're going to be first. Now, how do you think that resonates in the minds of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're racing in to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, we'll, we'll get it. Yeah, we're first here on earth. But unless there's something before first, then we're first wherever this paradise is you're talking about. Oh no, Jesus says, you're getting your reward down here on earth. Therefore, the first, where I'm come going to, shall be last. Again, clearly a reason to get on the enemies list of the Sadducees, Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin. He also says to love your enemies. That's not easy to do. To turn the other cheek, to pray without ceasing. 
As he said, no one enters the kingdom except through me and therefore the one who sent me. But a lot of ambiguity about who that one is. Another point, forgive and forgive again. Even his most trusted follower, Peter, has a problem with this one. As he says, but Lord, how many times am I to forgive those who wrong me? Come on, like seven times. He wants a number from Jesus. He wants something to make it easy. Just give me a number and I'll do my best to to match it. So how about seven times? And Jesus' response, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. Folks, remember that Jesus, Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't educated. He's not about to figure out how to do 70 times seven. He's not going to know that that's 490. As a result of that, he's confused. And as Jesus says, don't worry about it then. Just forgive and forgive again. And speaking of forgiveness also brings us to the likes not only of Peter, who is the apostle most written in the Gospels, but any idea who the second most written name is? Your mind, if you're familiar with the Christian Gospels, your mind might be racing through those like perhaps James or John. But no, the name most written after Peter is Judas, Judas Iscariot. Do you ever think about it for a moment that Peter and Judas have one massive common denominator? They both deny Jesus. Yes, we know about Judas, how he, for money, ransomed the location of Jesus so that he could be arrested and crucified. But really, was Peter any better? While Peter may not have actually disclosed the location, Peter said to Jesus at the Last Supper, not hours before he was arrested, Jesus was arrested, that I will follow you through thick and thin, I will follow you to the end, even if it means me getting arrested and killed. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, not only will you not do that, but you will have three times to identify with me. And before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter is livid. Jesus is not listening to him. But at this point in their time together, Peter has yet to ever find Jesus being wrong, so it hurts Peter as well as angers him. As a result, when Jesus is arrested, yes, the ten other apostles, including Judas, flee for their lives, flee for their safety. Peter doesn't exactly run away. He follows, but follows at a distance. And it is there in the courtyard, as Jesus is being tried and eventually whipped and beaten, that people come up to Peter and say, you, you were with him. I know you are a follower of this Jesus. Peter denies him once. And then it happens again, and Peter denies Jesus twice. And then Peter denies Jesus yet a third time. And immediately as Jesus was being brought out, and Peter screamed that he does not know the man, the eyes of Peter and Jesus locked together. And right at that point, The cock crows, and Peter thinks back to their supper together just literally a few hours before 
when Jesus had said, you will deny me three times. And Peter went off and wept bitterly as it is written in the gospels. So if Peter and Judas have two huge, have this huge common denominator of denying Jesus, denying his existence and their connection to him, why then did Jesus earlier say, Peter, you're the rock in which I'm going to build my church? Doesn't exactly say that about Judas. Difference, Judas couldn't handle the pain of the guilt and therefore went and hung himself. Peter went out and wept bitterly, but when given the opportunity, asked for forgiveness. Peter, ladies and gentlemen, was human. And that's what Jesus was trying to acknowledge with all of the apostles, but especially Peter. The lesson too, why would Peter be that rock on which the church would be, continue to be built on? Because think about anything else we commoners might do wrong in our lives and wonder, will Jesus forgive us for that? Well, folks, if Jesus can forgive Peter after denying him three times, can he not forgive us for what we've done wrong? Again, as we talk about, to paraphrase, this is why he was so hated by the Roman and Jewish elite. The bottom line is that he appealed to the majority of common Roman citizens. By extension, hundreds of thousands of people in the Eastern Roman territory. Go back again to the primary forms of religion before the time of Christ. Remember we talked about in the last podcast, this idea of Greek and Roman mythology, the woman that lost her husband and her kids to a dreaded skin disease, that woman who had prayed what she thought was the right Roman or Greek god or goddess at the right time for the right reasons, and they still died. Now this Jesus is saying to somebody like this common woman, where I come from, you're going to be first. There is no wrong reason to pray. There is no wrong time to pray. You tell me that that's not going to appeal to the mindset of a woman like that who lost everything? So with that, and again, summarizing, therefore, the problems with his teaching, the problems with what he was saying, we look at his death, therefore, the new Passover, Jesus passing over to his father and by his death and resurrection. Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane Garden while the Sanhedrin met in the courtyard during the night. This is the beginning, ladies and gentlemen, where I would like you to really follow along here, especially because what I'm going to say here is not easy on a lot of ears. But the story, the historical record of what took place in the eventual execution of this Jesus Christ is arguably one of the greatest changes, one of the greatest switching baits in world history. The reason being is that the responsibility for Jesus' death was taken squarely from one group of people and falsely placed on the backs of another group of people. And that group of people that will pay the price for this will be the Jews. And it starts right in the beginning there where Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane while the Sanhedrin met in the courtyard during the night. Two 
patent falsehoods there. Number one, in the courtyard, the Jews did not hold those types of meetings outside. They would not have been in a courtyard. Secondly, they met during the night. Jewish law would have forbade any group from meeting after dark. Then why would the gospel accounts rewrite it that way? The problem, folks, is if they don't switch in some of this little bait and switch again, chronologically, the story's not going to fit. So they, the gospel writers and the followers, will it'll eventually take it from the responsibility of the Romans. The Romans were who put Jesus to death, not the Jews. The Jews didn't have the authority. So as a result, in order to make this chronology fit, they're going to have to start bending some rules. To read more about this type of account, you can read the book Zealot, where specifically here on page 157 is what I'm talking about here. The Sanhedrin would sentence Jesus to death, but according to Roman law, they did not have the authority to do so. That's true. Hence, he was sent to Pilate, the fifth Roman governor since King Herod. The Sanhedrin did have confidence that Pilate would issue the death sentence because of the number of insurrections that had taken place during the last three years because of this Jesus. However, in all four gospel accounts, it is written that Pilate wanted nothing to do with persecuting or killing Jesus, who was a Jew. Why? Why would Pilate have had any problem with sentencing a Jew to death without even so much as a trial? Pilate sent thousands of Jews to, to death for no reason at all. Just like his predecessor, Valerius Gratus, also persecuted Jews nonstop. They were Romans. They were Roman governors. They didn't have any problem sentencing Jews to death. They were a problematic group in Roman society, according to these governors. So this idea that, tr that, Jesus, that Pilate was truly not moved as to Jesus's crime and resisted and moved to release Jesus, that's pure fiction. The Sanhedrin resisted and threatened Pilate by not, quote-unquote, being a friend to Caesar. Pilate held the record, ladies and gentlemen, for sending the most Jews to their death without so much as a trial. But suddenly Jesus is going to be the exception to his rule, to his record? Not a chance. Supposedly, Pilate attempted to appease the crowd to the ceremony of, quote, releasing one prisoner, end quote. There is no evidence that this type of an event, there's not even a, 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 a title for this event or ritual. There's no evidence that this was ever an annual or actual event. Why drum up this fiction then? So that the gospel writers could demonstrate that Pilate was grasping at straws. And then to add insult to injury, the man that is brought out to criminal, that is brought out to stand next to Jesus while Pilate asks, which one of these do you want me to release? Jesus, the king of the Jews, or Barabbas? Well, Barabbas is his last name. Why are we flipping to last names? Because Barabbas' first name was supposedly Jesus. However, Barabbas was never introduced, never said a word, and is not mentioned in the other 23 books of the Bible. And supposedly Barabbas' crime raising insurrection, a thief, and a murderer, he walks away free. Would you think about the fiction of that? 
This group of supposedly thousands of Jews is watching this Jesus stand up there. A man that countless times had healed people. A man that countless times had told those commoners, where I'm coming from, you're first. Nah. Why don't we go ahead with this other Jesus fellow here, this Barabbas, and, uh, who was a murderer and a, a, a thief, amongst other things, and causing insurrections. Yeah, let's take our chances on him. There's no common sense to this that, that makes sense. Therefore, fearing ruining his reputation as an effective governor, Pilate only then relented and ordered Jesus to be crucified. And ironically enough, in the end, Pilate would be recalled anyhow as a disgrace for not keeping mob rioting under control. Yet in all four Gospels, in the order that they were written, ladies and gentlemen, not the order that we see them in the average Christian Bible today. In the average Bible today, it is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that's not the chronicle sequence in which they were written. In chronological order, it is believed that Mark's gospel was first, followed by Matthew and then Luke closely behind, and then a couple of decades later would be John's. Each one of those gospel writers slowly takes the blame from for the death of Jesus away from Pilate, Pilate being a representative of the Roman government, slowly takes the blame away from Pilate and the Romans and places it squarely on the head of the Jews, all of the Jews, to the point that Christians and Catholics every weekend do not blame the Romans in what the Catholics recite as the Nicene Creed. In Matthew's Gospel, even Pilate's wife, who was unnamed and not named in any of the other Gospels, later on she will be given the name Claudia or Procula, she sends a note for her husband Pilate, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, to have nothing to do with this man. I had a dream about him last night and I'm still troubled by it. Wash your hands of this man. Folks, again, that's fiction. Can you imagine somebody of the political stature of Pontius Pilate there with his small group of advisors as they're deciding what to do about Jesus or not? Saying, you know what, guys, I just got a note here from the wife, and uh, she said she had a bad dream about this guy, and maybe we better let him go. Can you imagine the way Pilate would have been received that he was receiving counsel from his wife? Again, as I say, nothing part of that fits. And as a side note, the account of Pilate's wife, Claudia, supposedly stepping in on Jesus' behalf, if you don't think there's a lot of belief in that story, then why is she an actual saint in some Eastern Orthodox churches and the Ethiopian church? So with that, Jesus would be sentenced to be crucified at Golgotha, known as a place of the skull, at an abandoned quarry just outside of the city where there was an outcropping about 16, 16 feet high that ironically enough resembled a human skull. So we're moving again away from this 
persecution of Jesus, why he was put to death, the bait and switch in world history, taking the blame away where it belonged from the Romans and placed onto the Jews. And we're going to move into now the actual crucifixion. Quick side note, because oftentimes I'm get, I receive this question in my classes, why the bait and switch? Why not just leave the blame where it belonged with the Romans? This is where we have to understand our geography. Remember again that the Roman Empire at this point is the largest empire in the known world. It is encroaching upon, again, 35 modern-day countries. Think about where those 11 followers of Jesus and the, the apostles and their successors, and as the population grows, wherever they are going to move west in the Western, in, in the Roman Empire, they're going to be moving within the Roman Empire. Everywhere that they attempt to uh, do their work, and spread the good news about Jesus, they're going to be in a territory that is flying the Roman flag. So how do you attempt to try to explain why supposedly your founder was put to death and they have to explain it? Well, the Romans did it because they're atheists. They won't believe in us. So that's why the Romans did it. They would all wind up on the cross faster than in some cases some of them already did, like Peter and Paul. So for that reason, no, they couldn't blame the Romans because that's the population that they were preaching to. No, they chose the Jews because the Jews was a tiny population in the eastern half of that large Roman Empire world. So as a result, it was far easier to blame the Jews in that other region of the empire than blame the Roman government that was all around them. So from here, moving on to the crucifixion, why crucifixion by form of being nailed to a cross? Well, first off, very few were actually nailed to the cross. Most were tied. But the reason for that form of execution is that in large ways, and I don't mean this in any way to be crass, but it was the cheapest form of execution. Remember, too, that not everybody was executed publicly, but only those individuals who were known to cause serious problems in the Roman Empire. It was chosen for public execution as making a statement to others that if anybody wants to follow this man's lead, if anybody wants to follow his path, this is what you're looking at. So it's a way, public executions, to supposedly temper down society and end those that might be following him and thinking of the accused and doing wrong. It largely is no different than why in the United States we're one of the last countries in the Western world to still do public executions. If you think about it, and when somebody is put to death here in the United States, there's three groups of people that are allowed in besides clergy. One is going to be the death of the family, excuse me, of the man who or woman who's about to be killed. The second group are the family members of the victims of this supposed criminal. And then the third, no, no surprise, the press, who will then report that in the newspaper, the news, the, ne the various news sources the next day. We in America start still, not everybody, but there is a group that still largely believes that public execution has a way of minimizing crime, even though today, good luck trying to find statistics to actually prove that. So that's the reason for this form of public execution. The accused who would be uh, crucified on a wooden cross never carried the entire cross. There's no way that they could size-wise, regardless of how strong the accused may be, they simply would not even have not only the physical stamina, they wouldn't have the height. Because for every one foot that that post comes out of the ground, it has to go a half a foot into the ground. So 
size-wise, physically, there's no way that one individual could carry the entire cross. So what they generally were forced to carry would be the lintel, the part that the arms would be attached to. Again, most would be tied to the cross. And it is there once the accused would be pulled up onto the cross, tied to the lintel, and the lintel pulled up with ropes, and then the lintel put onto a bracket or nailed to the post itself, that's when the people would watch to see how long the accused took to die. And yes, that is in many cases where bets were placed as to would the accused die in 24 hours, 48 hours, or longer. Four days was the extent that an individual was believed could actually survive physically in that position because when somebody is crucified whether it be through nails into the limbs or through being tied to the cross they die through suffocation the human diaphragm when placed against a solid backing cannot take in oxygen or a gulp of air easily they have to push their their chest out take a gulp of air and then come into a quote unquote relaxed position and then do it all again for another breath. Depending upon the condition of the criminal or the accused that is being crucified that way, again, it could take possibly at longest four days. Somebody that was nailed where the nails were driven into the arms and the legs, not into the feet or the hands as those parts of the human body do not have the strength to hold up a human body when nailed to a cross. Generally, their death would come into a down down to a matter from days to a matter of hours, simply, of course, because of the ob obvious pain that one would suffer and feel as they attempted to push their torso out in order to get a gulp of air. Eventually, hopefully mercifully, they would pass out from the pain and then the suffocation would quickly follow. Once the lintel was then hoisted up, the legs would then be nailed to the post for those, those very few criminals in society that would be uh, nailed, uh, crucified with nails versus being tied up. So again, after a long and exhausting and excruciating time, the accused will die of suffocation. Again, the maximum that would take those four days. On occasion, legs might be broken, quote unquote, as an act of mercy, especially for those that were nailed to the cross to put them out of their misery. This was not done in the case of Jesus because he had died within three hours. In terms of his death, as I said in the prior podcast, we don't know necessarily when Jesus was born. We don't have an actual year. We also have no clue as to the actual date. However, we are more confident, historians are more confident that he died somewhere between 28 and 33 AD within a five-year period, and we have the most confidence that of any day of the then calendar year, translating that to the modern-day calendar, that most likely the death took place on April 7th, 30 AD, is the most agreed upon by historians. But simply put, he was tortured and executed because he, had da he dared to assume kingly ambitions. Regardless of the way he died, as Christians know, he rises again 
in three days. I do not get into that at any point in my classes any more than I will here, because now we get strictly into theology and get away from the historical record. As a result of that, I'm moving on now because this is not a world religions course. I'm moving on now with the effects of this Jesus on the mindset of his followers at the time of his death, much less again, resurrection three days later. By 200 AD, Catholicism, which also means universalism, had spread throughout the land of the entire empire. But also by this time, the historical record of the life of Jesus had already been sadly twisted to remove the blame for his death from the Romans to put it squarely on the heads and backs of the Jews. This would be a legacy that would hold over the heads of the Jewish community for millennia to come. Under Constantine in the 300s AD is when Christianity became the official religion of the empire. Why did Constantine become baptized? Why did he make it the official religion of the empire when his predecessors literally made a game out of taking Christians and feeding them to the lions and persecuting and executing them? We have no concrete reason as to why Constantine converted. We do know that his mother was secretly a Christian convert, but we have no knowledge whether Constantine was aware of that, and if so, is that the reason he made the move? Could it also be that decade after decade, with more and more of the population of the Roman Empire converting to Christianity, could it have been, and I don't mean this in a funny way, could it have been that, to finish the phrase off for me, if you can't beat them, Exactly. Join them. Is that constant? Was that Constantine's reason? Because collecting taxes from these individuals was getting harder and harder to do. How do you collect taxes from a population base that could care less whether they're killed or not because their Garden of Eden, their heaven awaited them? They weren't happy in this earthly world, in this physical world, and they never would be. So why bother? You couldn't threaten them. So therefore, they weren't interested in paying the Roman taxes. It's, re it's one of the commonly held reasons why Rome, if you believe that it fell in the 400s AD, was simply because it ran out of money. It was unable to collect taxes. So for that reason, by 313 AD up to 325 AD, the Edict of Milan would be written and an official creed would also be written that every follower of the life of Jesus would have to follow this tenet to the letter, to the word and to the letter. Anybody that didn't would be considered a heretic. Please remember, too, that by this point, when Constantine converted to Christianity and made it the official religion of the empire, there were already over 600 miles of catacombs throughout the Roman Empire. Catacombs, again, those tunnels that the Christians carved out so that they could practice their faith. This is the reason, again, why some historians speculate, did Constantine convert because of his mother? Did he convert because of some central interpersonal conflict that he was overcoming? Or, again, as I mentioned earlier, did he also finally convert? Again, to finish the phrase, if you can't beat him, join him. And how can you stop a population 
stop the spread of Christianity from a population that is converting more and more every decade in by the double digits. Christianity was increasing and spreading. Perhaps, Constantine thought, if I simply join them and make it the official religion of the empire, then we can move on from there. The successors, however, to Constantine, along with Constantine himself, routinely regarded Jews with disrespect, intolerance, and disgust. As the decades turned into centuries, and centuries eventually into millennium, the Jews would again be continually, time and time again, be placed and blamed as those responsible for the persecution of Christ. To the point that in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, that again streamlined all the information relating to the life of Jesus, anyone who disagreed with that new creed was exiled if they were lucky, put to death if they were unlucky. Again, from the time of Christ to the early 300s AD, Christianity grew at an alarming rate of over 40% of the population converting per decade. That then brings us to the end of the second final podcast on the Roman Empire and the ancient world. Thank you for listening. Go to my website, ceconsola.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day. 